Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. You can find all my podcasts, of course, at tofop.com, T-O-F-O-P.com. Uh, you can find Tofop, the show I've been doing at Charlie for over 10 years. Uh, Fofop, which is back semi-regularly at the moment, hoping to be more regularly. Uh, there is our AFL-adjacent podcast, Two Guys, One Cup, an AFL podcast, and of course, this show, Philosophy. And if you'd like to support this show on Patreon, patreon.com slash philosophy, uh, that is the place to go. You can join up for as little as a US dollar per month, and that helps us put out the episodes, pay podcast Mike, make sure James can do all the brilliant original artwork, and uh, we're trying to get towards 5,000, because if we get to up to, well, we're towards 5,000, we're nearly there. We're not quite there yet, but we're nearly there. But if we get to 5,000, we can do two regular episodes of Philosophy per week. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been doing an example of that because we are close to 5,000. We're just not quite there yet for it being every week, but I've been trying to do a few of them. And this episode is one of them. Charlie Pickering is back. Most Australians will know Charlie Pickering is the host of The Weekly, a brilliant stand-up comedian, an excellent writer. Um, he's got a new series, a sort of a podcast, audible series coming out soon that we touch on a little bit towards the end of this. Anyway, there's so much cool stuff going on in Charlie Pickering's life, and uh, he is one of the most requested return guests. It's been a very long time since Charlie and I got to sit down and have a chat, and so this is what you're going to hear today. Thank you to everybody who's been supporting the show. Of course, you do get this episode ad-free and a day early if you're a subscriber to the Patreon page. So go there, subscribe there. We'll get up to 5,000. We'll do these twice a week. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and what we're doing now in Philosophy Land because I don't know if people have noticed, but we are living in times without precedent. If there only there was another word for it, but I'm going with without precedent, the most efficient way to say that. And we've all had to pivot a little. We've all had to change what it is that we're doing with our lives. And I've decided to go full bore into having an imaginary radio station. So Philosophy, this podcast that you're listening to, uh, now has two episodes per week. It has a Patreon page. I like to think of it as crowdfunded independent media. That's what I'm bringing to you rather than a podcast that has a Patreon page. Please subscribe, patreon.com slash philosophy. But because of your subscriptions, uh, we are able to do two episodes of this show per week, a brand new episode on a Monday with the new Philosophy guest. And now on a Friday... Uh, we dip our toes back into previous guests on the show and see what is happening in their life since we last spoke to them. And this one, well, we're getting in a time machine at the start of the episode, not the end of the episode, because we are going a fair way back in time at the moment, because I spoke to this man pretty early on in the evolution of the Willosophy podcast. This is how it starts. I asked the guests who they are. So who are you? Uh, I'm Charlie Pickering. <laughs> you said it like you didn't know if that was. A I just, answer I just, or not. 
I, I forgot, and all of a sudden I felt <laughs> scrutinised. Uh, I bet it's. I bet I did, said that with a lot less confidence than in the first appearance on Wallace. <laughs> a lot more questions in your life these days. Yeah, that's Everything right. Everything that we imagined was actually true, and we could rely on all those certainties oh. that we laid down for the good people on the previous podcast. All of those have been shaken up like an etch a sketch, and nothing is certain anymore. Do you feel like that? Is that is that actually how you feel about life at the moment? That even when you introduce who you are, there's a little question mark, Ron Burgundy style at the end. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Um, and it's a bit the times that we're in, but it's also, I think it's the um, the point I'm at in my life, which I'm just trying to think. I don't think I'd had a kid when I was on here the first time. I think it was just before I'd had, had a kid. I think I was I'd probably... What did I just finish the project or something like that? I think, or I was finishing up around. It was around then, and um, I was pretty certain of the world. And uh, I'm in the middle of. I've had a baby arrive like five months ago in the middle of a pandemic, so I don't know anything for certain at the moment. <laughs> like so many things have been shaken around, and I also think you just. Um, I think you can't help but look at where the world's at at the moment and think a lot of those certainties literally don't exist anymore or they were cheap facades to begin with. Like they were almost, you know, like a lot of a, a lot of niceties of the world and good government and stuff like that or um, norms, you know, like things like that. It, it turns out it was all just weird um, etiquette and no one follows it anymore. Weird norms and it's been amazing to me to see, and this is not to devalue, obviously, the incredibly tough experience some people have been having during what we've been going through. And I think that everybody's experienced some of that, you know, from top to bottom, but obviously people at the bottom disproportionately represented by those who find the current things hard. But how quickly we've just gone to shit has not reassured me. <laughs> like, you know, like I look back at you know, people talking about the war and you know, people having to go four oh. or five years without, you know, the you know, what they considered to be their norms, having a genuine new norm. And we're not even through a year of fucking having this yet. Yeah. Like, it's... and we're, we're probably not even, like the other thing is people are starting to feel like, oh, well, this is the end of it and we're coming out of it. No. no, chances are we're more likely in the middle of it than we are to the end of it, at best. Yeah, like you, I'm in Victoria as I speak to you now, so I'm in, in a protracted lockdown situation and that people referred to as the second wave when it was happening. And yeah. I'm like, based on the reading I've done, which is not comprehensive because you can't do too much of it, it gets you too down. Based on what I've read, this is the first wave. Australia hasn't really had a wave. And, no, it, and was, think, it was the first wave, and just yeah. after a while, the person who was waving, their arm got a bit tired, so they like <laughs> rested their arm down for like two weeks when everybody went outside. No, like, oh no, no, this isn't the second wave. This is me resuming the first wave. Yeah, it's you know, and a lot of people have referred to the war, right? Um, mm. Which is always funny because like there's been only one. Um, we've we've been involved in a lot of yeah. wars, but. The World War Two is what people talk about, and you know my grandfather fought in World War Two, and my you know my grandmother was a um, a wife back you know on the home front during World War Two, and it's actually a spot on comparison to make, and one that should embarrass us all. Like you know the stories that they had about. Well, what I'll say is this: like 
people getting angry that they have to wear a mask for the good of public safety, right? And protesting it. Like, literally joining a fucking protest <laughs> out of anger for having to wear a mask. Like, it, yeah. like that. that's remarkable. I mean... That's that's the step further. Like, y- yeah. you know what? Like, wear, wear your fucking mask. If you need to wear your mask, if you're in a situation where it would help just one other person, wear your fucking mask. But yeah. if you're a person who is like, nah, I'm not wearing a mask for whatever reasons then don't wear your fucking mask, right? But the minute you go and fucking join some protest <laughs> movement of not wearing a mask, that's that's too far. You've gone too far the other way. Yeah, it's and you look at those people and I think of my grandparents who had a ration ticket, a book of like ration vouchers to get butter and they would go like two or three weeks without butter if there wasn't fucking butter, Right. Could you imagine the rabid, where the fuck is my butter protests that would be going on with these maskless fucks? Firstly, like- I, I, finally, that would be a cause that I could get behind. But, <laughs> but that's a good comparison because during all these times, no matter how big things, bad things have got, I've been able to get as much butter as I wanted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like even in the times when people were baking more and suddenly shops were out of like flour and sugar and stuff like that, you never once heard of anybody going, stop the bloody traffic now. We don't have any butter left. We don't have any <laughs> butter, margarine. I can't believe it's not butter. Any spreadables of any kind, some Nuttalex. We don't have any butters left. There was always butters available. Yeah, I think not enough has been said for the outstanding way in which Australia's butter providers maintain supply through the crisis. I mean, I think this, they are this is what our politicians heroes. have got to do. Give more <laughs> shout outs to the things that didn't go. Like, sure, you might not have enough toilet paper, but I think you'll find if you want toast, there's plenty of bloody butter. Yeah. It's, but you know, that should be, that should absolutely be done a lot more. Could you imagine Scott Morrison stepping up and saying, we've got our challenges at the borders, but but I've been, I've been informed the Ushies will be arriving mm. at supermarkets Tomorrow, on time, as promised. It's an you unprecedented know. time for Ushis. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the amount of increase in people going to the supermarket, that's got to have had a push on to the Ushi economy. Like, the, you know, I mean... It's strain on the, on, on the whole Ushi ecosystem. Well, I here's mean, what I would say, is that if you were in the mask game, right, mm-hmm. like six months ago, like... You know, you were selling the requisite amount of masks, like, you know, for people working in service industries and like, you know, people working, you know, like with tradies and those sort of things, people who needed masks. You were, yep. you still had a pretty good business. There's a whole bunch of jobs that, you know, compulsorily needed masks and you were supplying those masks. But now it's like, you know, it's, it's honestly like one of those situations where, it's suddenly one of the biggest industries in the world. If you're in the mask game, it's like striking it big on Bitcoin. Like there must be mask empires. There's going to be like futuristic e-entertainment channel reality shows based around the sport and privileged families of mask (laughs) empires. Yeah, I was thinking of doing a bit of mask selling just as a side hustle, just like dipping my toe in it, getting in at the ground floor, getting into masks, you know. I have like considered. Have it. you considered it at all um, doing something else? I mean, you probably haven't because the truth is that you continue to do the things that you did, like your television show, for example. So actually, let's talk about that for a start. I, I want to talk about right. the idea of you know making a show that is ordinarily 
uh, in front of uh, a live audience. You know, you're making a weekly topical news satire show and then suddenly you're in this, you know, completely unprecedented, you know, world and you're not the first show that has to do it, but you're on the front line of shows that have to work out how we're going to operate in this new environment. Talk me through some of that and when you first realised that the show was going to be completely different and what challenges there were in that and, you know, what you learn out of it. It's funny, like... I think we were fortunate, like uh, Sean McAuliffe was on air and in the middle of a season when he had his audience taken away from him. And uh, you've made TV. You, it's like trying to change what you're doing in the middle of a season is like turning around an oil tanker. It's Im- impossible. You've committed resources. You've spent your money already. Everyone is deployed doing a particular thing. Um, and I, I, you know, I just thought that must be so incredibly hard you've written all this stuff you've recorded all this stuff and you have to do it with this giant important component not there which is the audience laughing at the jokes it's it's a really tough thing to do and i think we were lucky because we had we had about six weeks i think it was six or eight weeks to um to change our plan uh, and to to be ready and uh it was funny because we had started pre-production a lot earlier because I was going to have a baby and take two weeks off when the baby was born. So we were filming sketches and we had people in the office well before when we normally would. And that's when the pandemic hit. So we were lucky that we were all there. We had some material in the can. Then we, the fact that we had people in the office, we go, all right, well, we've got to sort this out. And, um, and I've got to say, because I did step out when the baby was born, the rest of the team, it, it crunched right then. So I wasn't there for the hardest two weeks which was shifting the whole workforce onto Zoom, structuring meetings and making all of that work. Um, but I think what what we did was we looked at it and we said, you can't make the same show without an audience. You you can't do it. It, it would feel too weird to be standing there doing a monologue, you know, like, like a proper stand-up monologue with no one in the room. It... It would not. It just wouldn't work. And so we looked at it and we said, right, we've kind of got to come up with an entirely new format that does the same thing that our show does, which is, I, I guess, sort of, um, it, it's a yeah, it's a topical comedy show, but we sort of do everything through the prism of we've watched all of the news and here are the best the bits you need and here are the funny bits and this is all you need to know this week. That's basically you know what we try to do. And so we just had to say, right, we've got to come up with a completely different way of doing that without an audience. And it became far more broadcast television than it was a live comedy television show, um, which means you, you know, there's a lot more editing and a lot more vision and clips from a performance point of view. I had to completely change the way that I did it. And I had to um, have this whole other sort of almost newsreadery, broadcastery element to it. You know that. Well, t- talk to me about that. So, tell me what the how well, you mean, normally I, I, present it versus how you like had to adapt to present it. Because, well, here's what I'm going to say up front. You yeah. know, I'm not going to bury the lead on this. And I messaged you about this. I actually think it, of all the shows that I've watched, yours, like to me, found ways to add value from what had been taken away. Like, I think Sean did an amazing job. I've watched, like, I think John Oliver's done an amazing job. I think some of the other American TV hosts have had, you know, different 
you know, aspects of it working and not working depending on, you know, what their attitude was. And I've watched a lot of them knowing that I'm about to go into, you know, a series of doing a show that I've done for the last 11 years with an audience. In fact, I've never done a show without an audience. It's not, um, I like glass house was in front of a live audience. All the things that I've done have always been in front of live audiences. So I've been trying to watch as much of other people doing, you know, what they do and, and learn from them. So I'm particularly fascinated by this. So talk to me about, you know, the transition between the two, you know, what, what those two are in your mind and then what, you know, worked better or worse based, you know, in the new world. Well, I'll preface this by saying that, um, having done it a new way, uh, we prefer what we've made under this pressure. And so we, like, we actually enjoy that more. We, we think it's a more, actually more sophisticated way of doing things. And, you know, there are, there are parts of it that, we want to become the like the foundation for the show going forward. And also, we've got no guarantee that when we're back on air in February that we're allowed to have an audience anyway. So we have to plan around that. But from a from a hosting point of view, um, this may delve into tedious self-analysis, but comedians are pretty good at assessing what they do. <laughs> but but, but, I, I, but I, that's why I was trying to give you permission at the top of it. What I want, I'd, I'd, lo- I'd love some tedious self-analysis it's it's really actually what i am you know really desperate for and i think people will be interested in it because everybody's had to see people adapt to new work circumstances you've seen it yeah in sporting games the shooting in the uh in the nba the shooting mm. is more accurate without the crowds they, it, they now have enough evidence that the players actually shoot more accurately where there isn't the crowds they're watching them so i i would love to know you know what you found from this experience Let's start with what I did before, right? Um, I think it, what I did before was somewhere between stand-up and broadcasting, broadcast TV. You know, it um, mm-hmm. it's not stand-up because you're hosting a TV show and you if you actually just did stand-up at the TV hosting a show, it would be really uncomfortable and weird and desperate. Um, but it's not straight newsreader broadcasting. It, it, you know, I found what I did before was somewhere in the in between but there was always the success measurement of an audience laughing and preferably applauding. So you would judge how well a show went by how big the laughs were and how big the applause was and which, you know, which jokes got applause breaks. And that's, and, and that, and so you tailor your performance to that. You play bigger, you are really feeding off the audience. It's a constant relationship, even between segments you know, a little bit of downtime, I'm talking to the audience, cracking jokes, so they're always on my side and always with me. And I have running jokes going in between segments that, you know, the people at home never get to see. And that way they're, they're ready to go as soon as I'm doing jokes and they're friends and you can fuck up and do another take and they're on your side and all of that. So you're maintaining a relationship there with the people in the room. And I would say you're that is 75% of what you're doing of who you're playing to. And I think you're playing about 25% to the camera and the people at home. So you take the audience away. A number of things happen. One, you've lost your greatest metric of success. Like you've lost your greatest indication that it's going well, which is applause and laughter. That's gone. And you're a comedian. That's the only time we know we exist. Like that's the only time we are truly alive <laughs> is when we're getting laughter or applause. Um, well, the greatest and- example of that is from night to night when a joke works or doesn't work. 
yeah. and like we're, you know like there is that real thing of like we're judging the joke not on whether it's a well constructed or good joke we're based based on what the reaction of the audience is to that joke yeah, that, not the joke itself the poor joke is like I'm the same joke you love me you last night you love me the night. moment you thought of me you love me last night what it, what, what happened yeah. <laughs> what so, happened man so you you take that away and that is in and in, in the first instant it's terrifying and then you realize it's completely liberating because you then start choosing what you think is good a hundred percent not what you think is going to get an applause or a big laugh in the room and and often they're the same thing i still think my my best joke in the series that I've just done would have been the best joke in, or would have, sorry, I won't say my best joke. That's for others. My favorite joke in the series I just did would have been my favorite joke with an audience. It would have got a big laugh and an applause. I'm quite confident of it. It didn't, you know, like, so my idea of what I would like to say about something or a joke I would make, it was pretty similar, but then you make individual decisions about what's the best way of doing this. I can actually go for a pithy turn of phrase that might, might not get, a big laugh in a room but it's a line you remember afterwards if you watched it at home or that it can have an impact it gave a bit more permission to be serious for a little while and that was okay you know like stick in a serious idea and say a straight thing because the absence of laughter is less apparent so there's no difference in how comfortable the viewer is between the funny bits and the serious bits it um, it all feels consistent. Um, and from a delivery point of view, all of a sudden, it's like I went from almost a two-speed automatic gearbox to like a like six or eight different speeds that, that I could do hosting. And some people watching at home might say three at best, but I I felt like, I had a lot more ways I could deliver a joke. I could communicate something. All of a sudden, I was working. Uh, I was working three cameras instead of one for monologues. Um, they had we put movement into those cameras, so different cameras. Fuck, this is this is starting to get very technical. But basically, so we have a segment called the week where we go through the big stories of the week. And we would have a dedicated central camera for the whole thing. But then I would lean, for each story, I'd lean on another one of the cameras. So I'd, I'd, I'd do camera three for one story and then I'd lean on camera one and I'd be hitting camera two for most of the, the hosting of it. They're moving in different ways. They can go sideways, they can stop, they can be close, they can be mid, they can zoom in when I say something, they can crash in on something. And it adds a whole new way for different lines to hit the person viewing it at home. And... The challenge then for me is matching my delivery so that the line comes out the way it's meant to sound. I deliver it at the tone and force that is best for that line and I do it with a timing and in a way that it matches what the camera does. And as opposed to just sitting there with a locked off camera trying to drop a mic every every 15 seconds. You know, like that's a very different thing to be doing and I think the result is on to like to air it's a more sophisticated thing to watch I'm, I'm not saying my ideas my jokes or my arguments were so magically more sophisticated i didn't become any smarter because i was hitting a camera in a different way but it was there was a lot more 
craft of making TV involved in it. And I think that worked in the show's benefit. I think with I think with humour in a room, one of the things I've noticed is that we need to hear people laugh a lot, you know, constantly. Hit this joke, hit this joke, hit this joke. We want you as an audience in a 30-minute show to, you know, a television show, to be laughing out loud 20 times each and, you know, combined that's like 100 times between the entire whole yeah. audience, you know, people laughing at different things, right? But I watch like something that I think's, you know, the funniest show that I watch at the moment, What We Do in the Shadows, Yeah. Uh, yeah. right? And in an episode of that that I've watched four or five times, I would laugh maybe five, six times properly out loud in half an hour. And I think that is the most hilarious comedy that I've watched in the last year. It's the same with John Oliver. You know, I watch this show and I love his jokes, but when I'm sitting at home, I might laugh out loud five or six times in an entire 30-minute episode. I'm constantly amused. I'm constantly going, oh, that's clever or that's funny or whatever. But it's not like I'm... So I think we do have a disproportionate... When you're trying to play the crowd in the room, mm. you actually don't give them the... There's there's a little less sort of nirvana, the loud bits are good because the quiet bits are good as well. Whereas like I think, yeah. you know, when you've got the audience there, you kind of, the quiet bits, you lose a little confidence in and you go to the loud bits, you know, more quickly. I'll tell you what I think it comes down to a bit is that, um, and this isn't shocking, but... There's a lot of bullshit involved in television. Television, uh, well, no. and, and showbiz in general. Showbiz in general, but shut but up. One observation that I made: you, you've been making TV longer than I have, and you will know this to be true. And I think this is one of the more interesting things I've ever noticed while I've been working on TV sets for the last what ten or fifteen years. And that is on television. If in a studio with an audience. No one is allowed to walk anywhere in silence. Someone merely walking from one part of the studio to somewhere else or someone walking onto the set gets a round of applause. People are getting applauded for walking in television and it's been happening since the 50s, right? And, it, and, and it's, there was just a moment that I realised that we were shooting an episode of um, uh, talking about your generation and someone literally walked on and it was, you know, that classic scenario of they have, you know, like stand-up comedians have said it over the years. If they get an applause to walk on, they go, hang on, I haven't done anything yet. And I just had that thought of like, we just applaud every time someone walks somewhere. And that is, it's nonsense, but it's also because silence is uncomfortable in a room, in a giant room full of people. Science makes Well, it's meant to be creating... An energy, right? Yeah. Like, so, like, when we're doing warm-up for Gruen, because I've got a great example of this. So, the way that that works is, uh, back to Unamuno did last season. Tommy Dean's done it previously to that. But, um, uh, so, Beck or Tommy, whoever's doing it, they will introduce me. I come through the, you know, the bit at the back and I get a big round of applause from the audience. Then I do my own individual warm-up, you know, of the audience. Then And I'm getting them to applaud for you know, for practice, for anything, you know, and then I introduce each of the panelists. They all get a round of applause. Then I go back <laughs> out the back and come back out and get a second round of applause. In the first series of the show, like our set is really weird because there's a giant entryway in the middle of like where we do the show and where the pitch set is because for the entire first season, if people want to go back and look, I walked out came to the front of the stage at the start of the show as if I was going to do like an opening monologue, got a round of applause 
and then walked over to the desk and sat down and started doing the show. <laughs> yeah. And well, I take back what I said about bullshit. It's um, it, uh, that all sounds completely. No, I mean it was the but... thing that I argued, I argued hardest for, yeah. like to get rid of. Like I, that, as soon as I had any power to make that choice, I was like, let's just start with me at the desk. I don't need an extra fucking round of applause just for you know walking out. And but I'm interested in how that then pre- pre- prepares you for the show because, for in my example. You know, I'm going to go to a show where I talk to a whole bunch of marketing, you know, experts and we do some comedy pieces in between, but then we do sort of a panel discussion and sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's serious and, but the kind of spine of the show is funny and relies on the audience and all those sort of things. But also just the vibe that we're making a show relies on the audience. All these people who normally, you know, can go to conventions and, you know, portray this exact same information you know, in a room where they don't have that applause and all the lights and, you know, fancy stuff. How do you get them into show mode? And how do I get myself into show mode? If I'm suddenly don't have like an audience that I have to talk to, was there any version of you that had trouble, you know, going, all right, this is the show now? Um, that's really interesting. There were a couple of, there were a couple of times when, I just there were there were two records where I felt like I had a lot of errors and we had to go back and re retake something. And that that just felt like I wasn't mentally where I needed to be to do it. But what I what on on the other hand there were there were times when we went in and I said, "Oh, can we just hit record on rehearsal and we'll do a rehearsal?" And I did it without an error. And then we were like, I think that's, I think that was actually right. Like, and Chris, um, the other EP, who's the best producer in TV, um, he would he would just go, oh, there's three lines you can do better. And we'd go back and do those three lines. But we're at the point of just like, that's polishing, you know, like that, that's really aiming for half percenters, you know. Um, but there were other days where I was like a mess and, and swearing at myself for fucking it up, you know, because, and I think that was just mentally, they were probably days where I didn't mentally get myself up for it. If you know what I mean? Like, and maybe that's, maybe it's easier with an audience because you've just got that adrenaline build from the moment you put on your suit in the dressing room, that adrenaline builds up and you know that there's going to be a room full of people. It's the same as when you were playing to 15 people in the, um, like the Regent room during a comedy festival or whatever, you know, you're behind the curtain and you're looking and you're seeing that there's people there and the adrenaline makes it, makes it go. You, you... Well, for me, it still is a lot like that because like, that's how we do it. Like, you know, I'll go, I don't get dressed until, cause I've always had a thing about putting on my show clothes as late as possible. Yeah. Right. That's part of my process of going from rehearsal mode into show mode. So I'll have a shower. Like by the time I've got out of the shower, you know, Sophie and James will come in with any sort of last minute notes or changes or anything that we change really late, you know, and just kind of run it by me and see if I'm happy with it, you know, for the auto cue. And it it is literally quickly into makeup, get your microphone on. And they kind of rush me out there to stand backstage, like at the end of the warm up of Tommy doing his warm up or Beck doing the warm up. 
And so for that five minutes, I'm just standing out the back there, really doing that same thing of going, what is the crowd like? You know, are they laughing at the right things? Are they into it? Do they need to be revved up a lot? Or can I go out with a little less energy? Like how much will I have to do when I'm out there? Then that next sort of 15, 20 minutes, which is me doing like my bit and the introductions and getting everybody ready, I often feel like is the most they work for the entire night. So there's part of me that it's like, well, that's going to be interesting. I I reckon I might feel like a lot less tired after the show. But the, the other thing that I notice is, you know, I'm not like I didn't come from the world of advertising and marketing. And so sometimes the things that these people say about advertising and marketing, Charlie, are boring. <laughs> they are boring to me and they will be boring to the audience at home, right? And normally when they say those things, we just try to cut them out of the show and hope we have enough not boring things to fill up most of the time that we've been allocated by the ABC. But I do also know that occasionally I can just drift a little. Like if they're being boring and I know it's not going to be in the show, I will actually kind of stop paying attention to what it is they're doing and think about what I have to do next to get the audience back or whatever. Yeah. And and I'm worried that now that there's no audience for me to want to get back, that I'm just going to be... <laughs> the slow drift. It's like, a, it's like yes. a gin and tonic at two in the afternoon. It's a slow fucking drift into sunset. Someone will be thinking, we should poke him, but we can't under these COVID guidelines. We have to stay two metres away on this desk. So what's your... So, I mean, I, I think I've given a pretty comprehensive answer. Like, yeah. I mean, I like we, we made a different show oh. and I tried to do a completely different job hosting it. And I, you know, but so what's your plan? Like what? What are you, what are you doing now? I mean, obviously, having watched the weekly, you want to do anything you can to emulate it. That's uh, obviously what you must want to do. <laughs> I no, I I look at your show and 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 Sean's show to a certain extent with with jealousy, because I think that in a way, it, well, it's all difficult, right? It's all incredibly difficult. But like, there are two shows that have done an incredible job of being able to deliver the same sort of show, but just in a different way, you know? And I think it's actually benefited both of the shows. Both the shows have been going long enough that seeing something, you know, them being forced to do something, you know, to just kick with the other leg at training has just brought out something in them that you didn't know was there in the first place. And I think that's a really cool thing. And so my hope is that at the end of our experience, we will also feel like that. But The one thing that I am worried about is that we have a show that really is two different gears. So I think that I understand how we can rejig and control the comedy and the things we can control. But the bit where it's a panel show, I think they keep themselves a bit more entertaining because it's in front of an audience. The audience is also my power in that Mm -hmm. room. Like I can, yeah, I am on behalf of the people at home and on behalf of the audience. That is my role on the show, right? So I can weaponize the audience to kind of move things on or just finish something with a big laugh and then move on to the next thing. Whereas if I'm in a room where, you know, everybody's having a conversation, that idea of going, here's my joke, turn the camera, get on with the next thing is suddenly going to feel, well, could feel extremely artificial, I think. And you almost, you, you run the risk of relying very heavily on your panelists laughing at your joke to give you that that break you know like that that yeah. that sonic break to to wedge a transition into it it's funny what we found and and you know this season uh 
like I've got Tom Gleeson, Judith Lucy, Luke McGregor joined the show. These are seriously funny people. But doing things in studio, doing like two-handers in studio with no audience was so difficult to, to the extent that we were like, we tried it different ways and we tried different things and then we, we figured out it, I, we didn't think we were going to solve that problem and so we went to me doing setups and throwing and keeping everyone's segments self-contained. But that was, you know, that's different to a panel discussion. But I do think that I'm yet to... It's funny, it shouldn't be this way, but I'm, I'm, like, I'm yet to figure out how you can do a really funny conversation without an audience. I think, you know, Charlie Rose, before he was evil, uh, did probably the best interview show that ever there was and it is two people at a table in a black room. There's no set and they just have a conversation. The interviews stand up today as some of the best interviews that were ever recorded. Um, so it can be done. You can have a conversation and it be exciting and there'd be no audience and no electricity in the air. It, it, it can absolutely be done. It's the comedy part of it that I think is a, it's a, it's quite a challenge. Uh, the funny thing is, and maybe this is, the, the audience gives me permission to bully the advertising people a bit. Yeah. I mean, when you put it like that, it feels a bit mean spirited, but really it's what the show needs because otherwise you've got a whole bunch of marketing people talking about, you know, marketing and it can be a show for them and not for the audience. Yeah, you it, know, they'll end up talking about issues in the advertising industry. And so, and also the so, ABC, like the ABC the, should by its brief be suspicious of the advertising industry. Like that should be part yeah. of its DNA. So, like, a lot of the time the things that I'm saying are quite mean to advertising is my point. Yes. Which is fine when I have 300 people <laughs> who are also on my side to go, ha, 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 ha. But when I take them out, does that take away my power to be mean about advertising? Is it suddenly awkward for me just sitting in a room with a bunch of advertising people <laughs> with me telling them that their industry is shit and they should be embarrassed? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, for one, look forward to that. I really, yeah. like, it's it, it's going to be really interesting. Uh, and I think every different show that has to grapple with this has to, it's an enormous problem-solving exercise. And it's it's funny. It's, um, I think television is very fortunate. Like, I think if you work in television, you're very fortunate. Um, that slash if you were able to keep your job in the pandemic, that you did a thing that could keep happening. TV was fortunate because everyone was fucking stuck at home. So it became more popular, you know, like it, it, arguably more successful as a, you know, as a, um, uh, I don't know, as a, as a product or whatever. It, it became more successful because of the pandemic in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, on the flip side, um, stand-up comedy literally ceased to exist overnight. And that's been just enormously difficult for for our colleagues that make their livings from from stand up comedy. Like, there's no there's no almost no capacity to make it from there. I've loved actually the efforts that comedians have made to do online shows and the way they've had to adapt and and, and embrace technology. And and it's not been easy. You know, fuck if making a TV show without an audience is hard. Stand up comedy online without an audience is. That is some that is some tough fucking gymnastics 
So I've had, so that was me for five months. But of course, I've always suspected that we were going to do some version of Gru. Like we were meant to. And, you know, as long as the, the world you didn't conspire against us so much that we couldn't make it. So we're making it very differently. We're making it without an audience. We're making it in a, in a socially distanced way where, you know, we've had to extend, you know, the desk so that everybody can sit yeah. the appropriate amount apart. Which, which then you we, have we're to doing... re-plot your cameras. You have to check if your set is actually big enough for the bigger desk and... Do you need it closer? Like, yeah, it's... So, and Russell, so this was the big one for us because Russell is Melbourne-based. The rest of the crew, you know, essentially are Sydney-based and a lot of our guests are Sydney-based. So my initial instinct was, you know, I think we could overcome everything if everyone was in the same studio. And then we had to honestly debate whether, you know, we could do the show without Russ because we couldn't have him in the same studio. We've we've decided that his role on the show is more important than what we have to overcome with the technology. So we're going to have Russ you know, on a screen. So a panel of people in a room and then Russ on a screen, yeah. no audience. So in a technical sense, there's going to be so many different parts of it mm. that, you know, aren't like they usually are. And for a show that we sort of, you know, felt very comfortable in our rhythm doing what it was that we, we did, all that's going to be really challenging. But I think what you said first, there's a part of me that's never really needed or appreciated the show as much as I currently need or appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So like in a really practical sense, it's been the difference between me kind of getting really depressed about the fact that I suddenly had absolutely no income for, you know, five months and, um, you know, I wasn't going to be able to pay my mortgage and all these sort of things. So there was the firstly just the financial idea of, well, I have 10 weeks of work around Gruen. So at least I know that's coming up and that'll give me some time to plot something else. Yes. But Secondly, I've always been doing other things. You know, last year I was doing stand-up and the radio at the same time. Yeah. Whereas this year, it's all that I will really be doing apart from the podcast, you know, during that time. I've never really even had a time in the entire history of the show where it's been basically the only thing that I'm doing. Yeah. So, do are you looking forward to that? I'm, I have a range of mixed emotions, as you can probably tell from the things that we've talked about. Yeah. I'm scared about a bunch of things. I'm... Yeah, I have a whole bunch of, I think, necessary worries. I think my worries are good at the moment because it's my job to identify the worries so that we yeah. can do things to make sure that, you know, the worries don't hit us on the first day when we're trying to work it all out. But I think mostly I'm energized by it because I think that Gruen at its heart is a show about the world, right? We're trying to tell... I, the thing I always say is that, you know, advertising is the poetry of capitalism mm. and capitalism is the story of modern society. And our show, like, views, you know, modern society through the prism of its poetry, through its language, its own language. You know, we look at the world through the prism of advertising, what ads and marketing say about us and say about the world. Yep. And the fact that the world has changed completely mm. feels to me like our show necessarily has to change completely regardless well, and particularly because weirdly enough one of the things that people have had thoroughly in common during this situation without precedent to use your terminology but the one thing everyone's had in common is fucking heaps of ads in their life because they're watching lots of tv like it's 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 and all of the advertising had to change there had to be a, a genuine evolution of the way advertising was done. 
and and the messages advertising was sending and the way that products were trying to ingratiate themselves with your new COVID life and tap into this sense of um, common uh, common experience. Um, it's funny. I, I was joking on Twitter with um, Ben Lee that no one's done better out of the pandemic than Ben Lee. Just we're all in this together. He would have just completely paid off every mortgage he had from that being used in every ad, every TV show across the board. Ben Lee coming up on the show next week, I believe, oh. as a catch-up guest. Uh, so, well, um, obviously, got some free time to, now that he's got all that. <laughs> we're all in this together, money. You know, the funny thing is that, of course, Ben Lee at the moment has been back in the news because he's been uh, posting a lot about the links between QAnon and the wellness industry. And as someone who has, you know, an interest yeah. in various aspects of wellness, he's been really disturbed to see how, you know, some of the good you know, aspects of wellness have been co-opted by really some of that negative, you know, stuff around QAnon. And I was, I, I had not actually put the two together, but in the same way that people got mad at Bill Gates because he said, you know, Hey, there's going to be this thing and we'll work on making sure there's a vaccine for it. And everyone's like, well, you must be behind yeah. it. <laughs> now that <laughs> that's, that's the only logical conclusion, um, it can't be far away if Ben Lee's taken on QAnon until there's a QAnon conspiracy that Ben Lee's some, somehow involved in fucking creating coronavirus in the first place to boost sales if we're all in this to together. To boost royalties that he uses to fund his child farm. That's yeah. <laughs> his ayahuasca fueled child farm. Child farm. Um, <laughs> he just put together a lot of team bands. It's still child oh. labor. <laughs> oh man! Oh, it's. <laughs> is there a less sinister individual in the world than Ben Lee? Too. It's just so fucking perfect. Oh, but yeah, I like. I think that's going to be fascinating with with Gruen because, yeah, the. The poetry has to. Ch the poetry had to change because the world changed because everyone's situation changed, and I think it's an interesting. I mean, I think one of the one of the real tensions in the world that um, has been really present lately is the tension between health and um, uh, health. Uh, sorry, um, I guess you would say like physical well being and economic well being. The okay, the, yes, the tension like between it. health and uh, uh, commerce. And there is, I mean, we see a lot in the media or lots of people who have been pushing the angle that, that, you know, the harm done to the economy hasn't been worth it. We should have been more open. We should have, you know, the um, uh, Creighton who works for the, who writes for the Australian has been banging on about it. Ullman has been banging on about it a lot. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of people were saying, oh, we should have been like Sweden. We should have just suffered the deaths and stayed open. Um, and and the alternative the alternative worldview is a two-step one as opposed to a one-step one, and that is that you cannot solve the economic crisis unless you solve the health crisis. The, the economic crisis is inextricably linked to the fact that there's a health crisis. And if you don't solve that or you don't get that under control, you can't have an economy. You, you literally can't have... Uh, solve the economic crisis if you don't. And they're kind of the two big competing And it's ideas. okay with your job where, like, this is the thing that I find interesting about the argument. And look, you know, I'm sympathetic to some aspects of the reopen argument in 
not the argument itself, but where it comes from. Yeah. I think that a lot of people who are behind that are having suffering genuine hurt mm. and they're seeing the genuine hurt that is done by people, you know, having them locked up, having them not be able to do their normal things, but to businesses and economies and the flow on effects that will have for generations. So I think all that is worth acknowledging and worth us not, you know, dismissing as, you know, being just an intellectual, you know, exercise. Some people are saying we believe the damage being done from our solution to this is worse than the cost in the first place. But a lot of the time when people are talking about, I, I, I could reopen my cafe and everyone can sit outside or I can go to work because we're construction workers and we work outside. And I, the whole time I'm like, okay, so what you really care about is not reopening for everyone, just reopening for people like you yeah. because I can't do my job outside. Like I, I personally need it all to get fucking fixed up and there be a vaccine so I can jam some people in yeah. a room again and then get to them <laughs> expel fluids as often as possible on each other. Uh <laughs> It's moments like these you wish you were a smaller up-and-coming act because the room size would be the same. The audience size you're allowed would be exactly the same. Wouldn't interrupt Yeah, but I, here's, here's what I would say about this is that you still, like, if you, you're you getting 50 acts, you're still getting them in a 30, 50 uh, people. You're getting them in a 30-seater. That's how, like, comedy genuinely will, there will be repercussions because a lot of these bars and clubs, if 40% of bars aren't going to reopen, yeah, that's, you know, the the industry um, speculation, but let's say 40% of bars didn't reopen. Let's go with their number for the sake of this. That means at least 40% comedy rooms don't reopen or don't reopen where they were because those bars that don't reopen are going to be the places that have that little comedy room out the back where people have that night where they can afford to have 20 or 30 people in. But if you can suddenly only have 15 people in buying a drink as opposed to 30 people in or 60 people in instead of 120 people in it's suddenly the economics of even having that comedy room you know go out the window i would have thought yeah i the path back will be interesting it's you know i suspect i could i could be way off with this but i suspect there'll be some there'll be more smaller for purpose comedy rooms initially either run by management or run by comedians who need a place to put on a show and make some money. You know, um, Reese Nicholson committed to a, you know, a live venue and I think put on his first show as the pandemic hit, you know, but I, I, you know, I, I deeply hope that that room is there after all of this, when we can go back and do rooms. But I think there are going to be more rooms like that initially until an economy comes back and, bars and restaurants, you know, bars open up and all of that can happen. I think it's going to be very gradual and I, I, I don't think anyone can be certain of that path. But what's interesting, I think, is getting back to your point about the... I absolutely appreciate that if you have lost your job, your business, your income, of course you want to get back and work. I absolutely get it. I'm, I think, like, I'm so thankful every day I have been able to do any work at all. Um, but the people in the media beating the drum for us to get go back to normal, they're not thinking about what happens to all those people that are currently furloughed, all those people whose lives have been put on hold. They're not thinking about what happens when we open up, do it too quickly and everything gets shut down again and it's worse because you've got community spread in Sydney, in Brisbane, all of a sudden it's in Adelaide and Perth. I mean, living in Victoria, 
I, I, if you look at the polling, everyone's actually relatively supportive of the idea that we have to solve this thing, you know, that we have to suffer through this lockdown because it's the grown-up thing that you have to do. Like, it's, I'm, I'm amazed at how patient Victoria has been with this and how small the minority is that, that has been angry and calling him Dictator Dan and all of that and getting, and getting furious. Because I think people see that we, we experience what community spread is and it's the absolute loss of control. Like it's an, it, it is something that is out of control. And if you get that through an economy, you know, no one's going to go to a fucking restaurant if you could literally catch something that could kill you or your grandma just by going and having, a, having fucking eggs for breakfast. No one's going to do it. Like, you know, if, if we lose control of the virus, it, it's not going to be any better. So I think the people beating the drum saying we've got to get back out there for the good of the economy... I don't think they have the best interests of everyone that's furloughed at heart. I don't think they are thinking enough about that. And it's, you know what? Like, maybe it's because I'm over 40 and I continue to make big fucking mistakes in my life that I think that you have to think things through a bit more and you have to realize sometimes that, well, actually, do you know what? Most of these things are always more fucking complicated than you think they are. Or often it's a two or three step process you have to think through not a one step reaction to something and that's hard you know we're not because we live our lives on social media we're not exactly training ourselves to think in three or four steps anymore we're very we're a lot more reactive you know and i think that's that's probably why you've seen things go quite poorly in certain parts of the world and and other places that have done it hard seem to be in a better situation you know so talk to me about the state of the world then, because I'm always fascinated to get your sense of, you know, where things are. So, I mean, there's some big ticket items. Obviously, the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic is one of them. Another one is obviously the impending, you know, already arrived, but, you know, also impending in more massive ways, threat of climate change in our community. And then we have, you know, the run up to the American election, which I'm sure you're paying a lot of attention to because... You know, so what's your vibe on uh, where we're at? What's what's good about where we're at in the world right now, and what's the what are the things we should be worried about? I feel sadly like the list of what's good about the world is short, right? Uh, that's why I thought we could do that one first. Yeah. Cover it off <laughs> just for the sake of balance. <laughs> so do you know what I think? Like this, here's something I think is good. Uh. Almost without exception. The countries of the world that had female leaders at the time of the pandemic handled it better than everyone else. Their results mm-hmm. were better than the countries that had male leaders. And, and I just think that is historically a really important moment. That when the biggest crisis to face the earth since World War II happened... The, the countries with female leaders, their leaders handled it better. I mean, it is a massive flip on the head of the hacky comedy joke that both you and I would have grown up in clubs seeing people. And it was hacky, even if it was the first time you ever heard it, you knew it was a hacky old joke, which was about uh, women couldn't be, you know, leaders. Because I think maybe originally it was like a Robin Williams joke or like it was, yeah. you know, it was a... It was a good joke whoever did it the first time in the context of the era they lived in. But yes. <laughs> it had dated considerably even by the time we were young stand-up comedians, which was you can't have women leaders because once a month they'll set off all the bombs. Yeah. Now it's like, no, no, 
you must have women leaders because in a time of crisis, they're the only ones who won't fuck it up. That's the actual. Yeah, it's it's almost like they're... Yeah, that their lives have been training for a shit sandwich. Like, it, it, like that, you know, and the fact that you can't lie your way out of it. Whereas I think men, by and large, have been taught the lesson that you can kind of bluff your way through most things in the world. Um, so I think it's funny, it, it, that joke, I think the counterpoint to that joke um, that I love, it's one of my favourite jokes of the last few years, it's Hannah Gadsby in um, Douglas, where she talks about, you know, the accusation that women are hormonal, you know, like, the, and and the, the counterpoint between women are hormonal and boys will be boys. And just the idea of, she's like, yeah, maybe I eat some chocolate, you know, every time there's a full moon, but I've never punched a, a wall. And, and I think it's worth considering that for a long time, the hormonal accusation has been thrown at women when the fact of the matter is that men are, are worse at, at being hormonal fucking messes. They just put it down to being men. You know, which is a great example of that dominant fucking paradigm that they've enjoyed for millennia. Well, that's why they call it menstruating, Charlie, because it's you turn into the impulses of a man. Fuck. That was brave. Um, <laughs> it's fine. Um, I'm definitely on the right side of that joke. There's yeah, no, no doubt absolutely. I'm on the right side absolutely. of that joke. It just felt halfway through. Like that's why I don't canceled. do transcripts of the show, though. It wouldn't, it wouldn't translate on paper, but in the room it was fine. Um, so that's the thing that I think is good with the world. I think also, um, I think we've all rethought what work looks like. Like we've had to. We've embraced technology for work that, you know, I, I don't I presume that everyone wants to work at home for the rest of their lives. And as someone with a newborn and homeschooling a five-year-old and working at home with like two adults working at home, it's been like incredibly stressful, right? And we're lucky enough to have jobs. Like it's, it's insane. But I think how much you need to go into the office has changed and, and businesses... I think businesses will adapt and, and I think people might get they might get an hour and a half of their commute back or two hours of their commute back a day and maybe maybe they're just forced to work more hours but maybe they see their families more and maybe there is a benefit out the other side of this that you you know you work in the office two days a week and you're at home oh, three days a week or vice versa and we have flexibility and people people are more present in their home lives. I think that's, you know, given that before all of this happened, probably the biggest thing people complained about, uh, particularly in Sydney, was commuter traffic. But, you know, in Melbourne, everyone's talking about how traffic was fucked and then this thing came along and traffic wasn't a problem anymore. You know, I, I think people quite like the idea of maybe we don't go back to 100% full-on commuter traffic again. Yeah, um, I must admit, me going to work has pretty much mean me going down one set of stairs down into this office to... <laughs> smoke weed and talk to my friends, which doesn't really <laughs> always pass the the muster test that it's an actual real job. But there is a part of me, because I always thought, like, I only do this show face-to-face. And now I'm like, fuck, I'd have to put on pants to go yeah. and do it face-to-face <laughs> these days. It's really funny. I was thinking as I, um, uh, as, as I was looking forward to doing this, and I was thinking that, like, um, because you you kind of the vanguard of podcasting in Australia, right? You you were onto it early and you've built it over a really long period of early, time. Early-ish. There was, I, I like to point out, there was plenty of people before us, but we've been doing it for over a decade. Yeah. And I kind of feel like you were the, 
like the entertainment equivalent of Doomsday Preppers. Oh, yeah. Like you guys were building the network. Yeah. You were we just, knew. We you were the were... QAnon of our day. Yeah. You... <laughs> <laughs> this is going to pay off, man. There's going to be a great awakening yeah. and people are going to need homemade entertainment. Yeah. And it was like you were you were just fucking ready. And um, hats off to you, man. Hats off to you. Um, yeah. Try to get a cartoonist now. Try to order your podcasting equipment and get a cartoonist on board now, mate. We, <laughs> 10 years ago. Oh, man. Try try, try talking about travelling through time to kill Kathy Bates now. <laughs> now, well. No yeah. one will do it. <laughs> no, um, I'm not sure that we would either, so <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> um Okay, so that's so what's that's so, what's good. What's, yeah, that's what's good. What's and, and worrying? The, and the you? other look, the other the okay. other possible. This is this mm. is where we flip. This is the possible good, possible bad. Okay. I think in in America we've been given the absolute example of how having a deeply unqualified narcissist running a running a first world country can have disastrous consequences. What's more dangerous? In, in a hypothetical question, a, a incompetent narcissist running the country or is there a danger that we're in store for a competent narcissist coming along and doing a lot more damage even than Trump has done? It's really weird. I, I don't think that tr- there'll be a Trump 2.0 that can garner the support that he has that has... that, that that has captured the slice of, of America that he has. I like, I don't know where that comes from. I, I, I don't know who it is because what he had was he was proper famous and he, and he parlayed fame into power. And I don't think there's anyone that, that, that is that famous that could have another go at this. I say balanced with the fact that, 200,000 of Amer- Americans have died from COVID largely because of his incompetence. I don't think that's a thing that just goes away. I don't I, like, I, I don't think that's a thing that the next bloviating idiot or gets to, gets to have another go at it. And I don't think, I actually don't think the extremely calculating brilliant narcissist that could ruin the whole world. I, I actually I don't think they're going to be lowest common denominator enough to capture the hearts and minds of enough Americans, if that if that makes sense. Maybe that's optimistic. But I think there's something special about Trump that he is... Trump's a poor person's idea of a rich person. Like, he's not actually a rich person, but he has a gold apartment. And he... I, I, I said this when he was getting, you know, when he was running for election. I said, if you watch The Apprentice and thinks that think that's how you run a business, then yes, you think Donald Trump is a great businessman. Whereas anyone who's ever run a business would look at that show and go, that is absolutely not how you run a business. You, you can't run a business. You can't sack 10% of your workforce today, which becomes 12% tomorrow, which becomes 15% and boils down to your sacking 50% of your workforce, you know, by the end of the week. That's not how you run a business. Um, but also, like, he's never run a real business. They've always been family businesses. He's never been accountable to shareholders or anything like that. But to me, he was the TV version of a successful person. He was the poor person's idea of a rich person. And he fit the bill for a bunch of people who, you know, 
who believed a certain version. He's like he's like if you asked a child to draw what yeah. a rich person is. I think that's what he's like. I think that there is like a kid would draw him in a gold house and he'd be the president and he'd play golf every day because yeah. that's what old people do. Like yeah. that's <laughs> he'd have big dumb hair and he wouldn't really know anything. And yeah, like he'd have this like family, like there was kind of more like a royal family because that's how kids see the world. You know, you have this sort of, you know, the princes and the princesses and, you know, it, it's got a bit of that characteristic about, like he has a little bit of a children's storybook version yeah. of success about him. So is there a chance that he still wins yeah, the I election? Yeah, I think there is think? because he, there are structural, there's two things. The structural advantages in the way the electoral college works that, there's disproportionate weight given to unpopulated areas. And um, and I think he maintains a, a good chance of that. I, you know, I, I I think a lot of people said who said last time the polls were wrong, the polls were wrong when he got elected. It was, it was no, you you actually just weren't reading the polls the right way. All of the, all of the evidence was there. And I, th I think it's actually similar to Bill Shorten. It's very similar to Bill Shorten. People didn't, listen enough to how unpopular Hillary Clinton was. Joe Biden doesn't have that problem. So I think there's a there's a strong argument that he Joe Biden is not unpopular the way Hillary Clinton was. Joe Biden is doing well in those white working class Midwest states in ways that Hillary Clinton wasn't. You know, so I think there's every chance if it's a fair election that Joe Biden wins. I I think that's the most likely outcome. But the fair election part is the big question because I mean, to have the president of the United States talking about how the election that he is like the upcoming election is going to be rigged is is just such a staggering thing, and he's talking constantly about how rigged it is, while at the same time trying to rig the election. Well, that's why he's confident to be able to say it's going to be rigged. He's like, because we're, exactly we're rigging right. it. <laughs> I hundred percent agree was... you. I understand yeah. <laughs> so assure you, ladies and gentlemen, the election will be rigged. And I know this because yeah. I currently have 25 people involved in a process of rigging the election through the yeah. post or voting twice. We don't care actually how we rig it. We're, we're happy to rig it yeah. in six to ten I, different ways. I got, I've got the US mail service to dismantle mail sorting machines to make your ballot, ballots not get there. It's like, it's like you know other shit goes through the mail, man. Like... Like it's um anyway it's so and the fact that the fact that he has gotten away with so much of it is just it's shameful for America it's absolutely shameful so I think there's every chance he gets reelected if he gums up the works if he like corrupts the electoral process enough um there's every chance he'll get reelected I'd love to think that enough people have died. That they that that Americans can learn that maybe you need to be a bit more grown up about who you choose. You know, I'm not saying that Joe Biden's magical, but I just don't think like he won't be playing golf when there's a fucking pandemic, and he won't be saying it's a hoax, and he won't be making jokes out of people wearing masks. You know, simple shit that, and and the, and it's the the number the, the core thing that's wrong with Trump as president is he cares only about himself and not about anyone else. And that's fine if you're a businessman. That, that's that's capitalism. You know, you should be a CEO of a company. That's great. But as president, your your core job is to care about everyone else more than you care about yourself. And and you know, 
so it's impossible that he will ever do that job well you know so hopefully they they do choose someone that does at least care about other people isn't that a big ask and when joe biden dies of old age around july next year yep. <laughs> is kamala harris then the president do you think that that's what like is is there i mean i know joe's not that old i'm being a bit mean spirited they're both old is the truth but oh but but statistic statistically you know fuck an american man living much longer than that that's a that's a particularly once shot. trump um, loses and he unleashes the fucking masses of people who believe that he's the you know the second coming and you know there's guns guns in the fucking street <laughs> and people are abducting each other and shooting each other and the riots that haven't really stopped you know they get their second wave yeah like there's still all that as well because you can't see it just being a peaceful handover of power regardless of who wins no it will be messy the only way it's not messy is if it is a humiliatingly huge margin and and there are enough people to to force Trump at that point because if he loses you know if he loses if Joe Biden gets 350 400 fucking electoral college votes um Trump loses his power at that point and all the people that have been scared of him and not stopped him presumably should not be scared of him at that point that said the the thing that I <laughs> okay so here's my doomsday scenario that I think is more likely than than has more of a chance of occurring than zero is Trump refuses to leave. He's supported by all these militiamen and yahoos that own AR-15s. But the military who Trump has absolutely pissed off and and um and not respected end up having to remove him from office. And I don't think that's such a crazy fucking concept. That's going to be some good television. What I did hear speculated the other day that if Trump loses, that he might resign as president immediately, which would mean that Mike Pence would be sworn in as president, you know, just for the remaining like couple of months of the term or whatever it is, like you know, so he can pardon Trump for all these crimes, likely or unlikely, far fetched or not far fetched. No, I think that's very likely. I mean, there'd almost be is... a bit of me that admired that. I'd be like, there'd almost be oh, a bit yeah. of me that goes, I am neither surprised. I, I, the thing is, I'm surprised he's smart enough to have thought about it. That's about the only, he got away with it. He bloody got away with it, didn't he? Uh, no, the, yeah. The, the one thing that you know Trump has spent a lot of his life thinking about is how to not go to jail for the shit he has done. That's He has been thinking about that a lot. Um, I mean, is there any chance the only reason he ran was that he knew that he had some shit that he needed to get pardoned for. <laughs> for immunity. And he's just like, I've got a plan. All I need to do is be president and then I can... Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, like, you know, um, Nixon's old lawyer is like one of... You know, like, um, uh, Cohen is like in his ear. Like, and it's just like, you know that at some point that came up at Mar-a-Lago a few years ago going, yeah, you know, you just become president and you get pardoned. Yeah. That's what Nixon did. And Hang Trump was like, I hadn't heard that because I hadn't you mean heard you can anything. get pardoned for all crimes? <laughs> like, he didn't <laughs> yeah, release his tax crimes. records, but like on the day of the pardoning, he yeah. comes in with like just trolleys full of paperwork just <laughs> going, we need to cover all these off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Like, I, that's what I don't know. 
if you can do a blanket pardon for everything predating that, or you have to be specific about the crimes, I think you should. You have, have to, to. You have to. Have like, to be... like, like in court, when you're pleading, you have to admit to the crime, sort of out loud. Like, there should be some process yeah. of yes, you're getting pardoned, but you've got to tell us what you got away with. Yeah, you should. It should be a list. You shouldn't be able to be pardoned in a blanket. No, no, no. no. Individual pardons. How many pardons? It, it if actually, Trump literally got pardoned yeah. for every crime he's committed in his life, speculate on what that number, you think that number would actually be. Like legitimately, if he got pardoned for every crime. Oh, you're it's got to be in the thousands. He's lied 25,000 25, times since he's been in office. So like, there's yeah. got to be a thousand crimes he's committed while he's been in office. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you get in, that. that's actually quite, that's tricky because his position as president, it's interesting. He, 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 and this is part of why impre- impeachment was so difficult, is he could do things that would normally be criminal, such as, um, uh, uh, what is it? not perverting the course of justice? But that's our version. But you know, basically, you know, like sacking the head of the FBI so he wouldn't prosecute your friend. You know, fuck. What's it called? Anyway, I got a law degree. Well done. Um, but uh, so basically. It's like interfering with an investigation is what it is. Um, so he could do that because he was president because he can just say, no, I have the right to fire whoever I like. And, and, and there's, a, there's this one memo from, some, from a Bush era that says that the president can't be charged with that crime, right? So, but, but before he became president, I mean, he's just one of the shonkiest operators of all time. And he would have committed thousands of crimes before he got anywhere near the presidency. So I, I think like, um, it's really funny. It, just in the back of my head, then I'm going, oh, is that defamatory? And then I thought, I don't know if I could say anything to damage the reputation of Donald Trump. I don't think I could, I could harm it. From well, here's what now. I will say is if Trump said, okay, I've lost and I'm going to leave office, like, you know, so we're all relieved. It's not going to be a fuss. I'm not going to tell my you know loyalists to rise up or anything. I'm going to go gracefully and I'm going to encourage the Biden government. But in the meantime, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to resign my Pence. And he just says it. He says it for now. He goes, this is what I've decided to do. Uh, this is my part yeah. of the deal. My, my book is called Art of the Deal. And this is my deal for the American public. I will go quietly and not burn the entire place down on the way out. But what I want in return is I'm going to make Mike Pence president and he is going to absolve me of all my crimes. I am going to run a nationwide lottery to see who can guess how many crimes it is. <laughs> see, I thought you were about to pose like an ethical conundrum. It's like, do you accept that deal? Like, do, you know, do you, are you happy with that deal? Because I would be happy with that deal. But now I like this sort of how many jelly beans in a jar. Well, this is the showman in him, right? He wants his final yeah. big day of ratings when they come in and they reveal how many crimes it is he's committed because he's kind of won us back a bit because now we're kind of barracking for the crimes. We're overlooking the fact that they're like a series of crimes that probably did legitimate hurt to people over generations and we're actually just going, well, I've got 2,546. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> And I like to think they do them one by one. They don't reveal the number at the start of the broadcast. It's literally crime number one. And so when it gets to two, the person who had one is suddenly out of the race. Oh. And so you're all sitting there, just got someone's got like a number in the 10,000s and they're just like... Yeah, but 
but it's going to be longer than the Jerry Lewis telethon if they do it that way. You do it one by one. <laughs> like, what are we up to now? They've got like the tally board. It's a, it's a, they've got a phone bank just to just to take all of the crimes as listed by the DOJ. Well, what we could do is Can we could split in? them into different crimes, like crimes against America, crimes against like you know, they, some of them could be obviously sex crimes, some of them could be you know business crimes, yeah, you know, race crimes. There'd be all sorts of subcategories that we could split the evening into. Probably some crimes against humanity in there, some human rights abuses I mean, on you the would, border, definitely. You would hope like, so. You got some the Hague will make will make a little <laughs> submission. Well they'll you know, like you just re- go to the Hague and go, what do you reckon? How many? That's 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 the equivalent of sports bet we, research. You just talk to all the jurisdictions. We got an approximation from the Hague. Yeah, we've talked to the Hague. We reckon there's at least 120 <laughs> coming in from the Hague. So he's got a it's like yeah. Eurovision suddenly. You cross to the Hague, deux points, (laughs) mille cent, mille cent crime. (laughs) Oh, Oh, it's so good. But yeah, look, it's a big mess, and 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 we've talked about all of this. And the fact is, I think the worst thing about COVID of all is that it distracted from where we're at with climate change and it gave governments excuses to do things through economic necessity and and not act again you know like like the the old conservative argument that it's too financially risky to pursue you know to give up on fossil fuels and adopt um adopt uh renewable energy that that whole argument it's almost like it's it's um had rejuvenation again it's like that whole argument is fresh now because it's like look we got so many people unemployed now is not the time to risk more jobs by adopting renewable energy when the easiest thing you can do to create jobs is pursue renewable energy you know canberra canberra fucking canberra got a hundred percent of its power from renewable sources last week it's like they all go there to they work there they're using that renewable energy. Like they should know that it's that it's a positive thing to do. Like it's it's so fucking obvious. But the, but it isn't that they don't know. No, I know, obviously. It's the 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 vested interests that fund them that that are on their team uh, like they want to make as much out of the ground as possible before they are forced to adopt something else it's i mean it's i used to do the thought experiment around comedy i was like what would i be like if it turns out that comedy was as it turns out the world's caught up with that idea and comedy is a super spreader but (laughs) well not a proved super spreader but like but say all this stuff had come from comedy comedy was one of those things that, that we've done some further investigation into climate change definitely methane um you know old fossil fuels but also uh, talking out loud. The, the, talking out loud. For whatever reason, stand-up comedy is also contributing disproportionately to the laughter secretes so much carbon dioxide mm. that it is it's contributing, and we can't plan enough. What we realise is that people need to laugh a little in their lives, but we can't afford the indulgences of society to have preordained places where people go to laugh. Yeah. Like you know, you can still. We're not saying, please don't, like if someone says something funny at home, it's important for the state of your relationship to have a laugh at home. But we are not, we just can't be in a position anymore where we can gather people expressly for the purpose of laughing. Yep. Do you 
immediately just go, well, this has destroyed my industry? Or do you fund a whole bunch of research and report and, you know, yeah, get Joe Hildebrand to be on your side and have contrarian opinions around it, get in Steve Price's ear, get some Sky News? Like, what would what would you do in that situation? Well, I'd finish that book that I'm contracted to write. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, um... I don't know. I, like that's really that's really hard. I feel like I would, I would accept it, and I'd just have to find a way in life. Like it's you know, I, I um, it's funny. It's no surprise given the the terms of this. That like so um, uh, Al Gore came from a really wealthy family, and they were really wealthy because they grew tobacco. And Al Gore sold their tobacco farm when he found out that, or when it was established that tobacco was killing people. He divested, he got rid of it, stopped producing tobacco. Um, gives him a fair bit of credibility when he says we need to do things for the environment, for the you know, for the good of the environment. And and it's funny. I think you would like to be a good enough person to to say, well, if what I'm doing is threatening the future, then I have I really probably should stop that. Have I booked any venues? Have I got a, have I got a bunch of bookings? Am I going to lose deposits? Well, what I'm going to say is you've painted a scenario, whereas I appreciate what you've said about Al Gore, but <laughs> Al Gore still sold a tobacco farm, right? Like in a tobacco factory. He had all that sweet tobacco yeah. money to go into his new life. As a stand-up See, comedian, now I, now I feel you, I don't, need have, a, you I, don't have like I feel sweet... I need a fact check. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't sell some, some sweet anecdotes of my childhood no to someone no. else yeah no I, I want to check it because i have a feeling he took the farm and he said we don't do tobacco anymore we do rye mm. or you know mm. and and fueled alcohol fueled domestic violence or something i don't know but um yeah. but but yeah i mean i'm not asset rich when it comes to to my uh when it comes to my industry like i can't sell off a part of what i do right you can't it's all suddenly just gone Okay, so you think you know, the scientific reports are probably true, right? You, you've read them all yourself and you trust science and that's how you've lived your life and then suddenly all these scientists have said 90, 97% of the world's scientists say that it is stand-up that's contributing, but there's 3% of the world's scientists who actually think it's a load of bunkum and they've published some reports as well. Do you... I mean, you could play to just those 3% of scientists... <laughs> And you—that's a solid—that's a solid base. That is a solid audience to build. You could fill some big rooms. Three percent of scientists. Three percent of the world's scientists in one room is actually a pretty good crowd. That's you're playing the MCG. It's good. It's. it's <laughs> are we including veterinary sciences? Is it, is it all scientists? <laughs> no, I'm saying what I'm saying is, do you like lean into the three percent who have a contrary opinion or do you still believe the science and go with the 97 percent, even though you have a vested interest in the three percent yeah i so i think i still believe the 97 percent of scientists i know that's the that's a very it's very easy to say that and appear like i'm altruistic but like i believe so much that if you know 97 doctors tell you you've got cancer and three say you've got a cold i'm definitely going to listen to the 97 doctors that say i've got cancer right um, I always think you should get the bad news and deal with it rather than pretend it doesn't exist because because the bad shit's going to happen anyway. Um, but who knows how I would 
actually react in that situation. It's it's really tough because, um, and I hate sentences that begin with as a parent, but as a parent, <laughs> I, I'd be completely torn because I'd be like, well, uh, to provide for my kids, the easiest thing to do is to keep doing the comedy. Um, but for my kids to have a future, I have to not do the comedy. And that's why I support comedy capture. I think, <laughs> I think comedy. there is clean we're comedy. Do, we're doing clean comedy. Clean comedy. We still swear and talk yeah. about sex. It's just environmentally friendly. Scientists comedy. are making huge tech. We need to get behind technology and we need to capture <laughs> jokes and laughs at the point of generation. And we trap them. And that's the solution. I believe I've been doing some cold same comedy. Yeah. What we do is we can. I've, yeah, I run it. I've got a, I've got a cock seam operation. I, yeah, fucking hell. Okay, so well, I've considered a couple of times during this. Um, I've like clearly I've still got some other things I can do in the media that don't involve having an audience. But I've got to say, there was just a couple of times when, you know, like I have 10 weeks of Gruen, but it's not like work for a year and, you know, yeah. I have like financial responsibilities and all these sort of things. So like, it's not enough for me. So I have to consider what else it is that I am going to do with the next couple of years in my life. And I was going to tour. So the thing that I was going to do predominantly for that period of time is now completely off the table. So you suddenly have to think about, you know, what else you do. And obviously my pro, like my ideal priority would be to do other things in the entertainment industry, right? But it's not like there's a million different jobs in the entertainment industry or and necessarily a million different jobs that you would do if offered to you in the entertainment industry. So I must admit there's been a couple of times where I've considered what other job could I get? And I, the list of things that I thought I was qualified to do is very slim. <laughs> well, you could be a journalist. I couldn't. I couldn't be a journalist. Well, the eight is no journalism. You yeah, haven't... but there's no journal. There's no journalism anymore for a start. And secondly, I, I would be a terrible journalist. I am like, I just I cannot you, do the. You just work. every every every. Like you'd be a political reporter and every article would be, check out this bullshit. This guy is a fuckwit. <laughs> this is complete and utter bullshit. This whole system is fucked and they're all conspiring against you. That's what, every story, that's what I'd be. I'd be like, I would just be one of those guys who couldn't stop complaining about how everything was rigged against everybody because I've seen where it's rigged. Like, you know, I've worked with people in power over the years and I understand how the fucking system works. It's not a conspiracy. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Like, that's yeah. what I find weird about conspiracy theorists is that they jump so far away from where they need to jump to find the conspiracy. The conspiracy like, is hiding in plain sight. 30 people like, in the world have as much money as half of the rest of the fucking world. You don't need to believe in some weird conspiracy theory. Just wake up and see the one that is playing out in front of our eyes every fucking day. It's like, hey, get this. <laughs> Capitalism has disguised itself as democracy. <laughs> All you need to do is pull the mask away. <laughs> like it's, right. it's, it's, it's actually the greatest conspiracy is right there. You're right. Absolutely the mask right. has been pulled away. You said it right before. Trump is the ultimate brand. Like, you know, yep. like I said, if advertising is the poetry of capitalism, Trump was the politician of capitalism. You know, he was the guy who literally made his own name 
a brand before that was a thing that was in the popular vernacular. He put his name on buildings. People knew the name Trump and then the name Trump seemed to come like be a substitute for success, a certain yeah. sort of success. And as you said before, a capitalistic success, a success that's only interested in the propagation of itself. And everybody thinks in some way is something to be aspired to, but is actually something that is only ruled by self-interest at any fucking time and will say whatever it needs to say and do whatever it needs to do to continue to cling to power and privilege. Like yeah. unmasked, he's right there. Like it's you don't doesn't need to be unmasked. We've been seeing a cartoon version of the worst excesses of how we've confused democracy and capitalism play out writ large on our TV screens every fucking day for the last four years. Like if this isn't yeah. our... Anyway, this, this would be every article I wrote. If I was a journalist, <laughs> that, that's the opening paragraph so, so then, of then, every fucking article I write. So, so then let me ask you this because I've talked to... A fucking altruistic game, right? Mm. I've talked a very altruistic game. And I remember the last time I was on this show, I talked about how I'm comfortable paying my share of tax. Yes. You know, if I have a good job and I earn money, I'm happy to pay my fair share of tax because everyone should get to go to school and hospital. You know, and I do believe that. That said, if you're talking about completely dismantling the dominant paradigm, how comfortable are you going back to if everyone just gets average income? again or like how comfortable are you if the best earners get pulled down to not being the best it's a disproportionate it's a it's the wrong argument for us to be having because immediately when we it's it's not going to be the example of me or you even though we've been incredibly lucky oh good i should have gone to those we um, don't need to start events with your eye this is the great thing that they've fooled us into is thinking that somehow it goes to everybody having exactly the same stuff. Maybe it goes to that eventually, but we're not going to go from what we are now back to that immediately. It's just a ridiculous no. well, not, way to argue. Not in the lifetime of, not, not even in the lifetime of our grandchildren. But, but if, say, for example, we took that disproportionate amount that the 1% have, right? Yeah. And we redistributed that in a more equitable way. If you like, you, there, Just, there were no more billionaires, right? And then yeah. that money went to those who most needed it in society. So we took all that disproportionate money out of the top and we put it in the bottom. And we just tried that on for 20 years yeah. and see how that feels. And so, I, so I'm going to argue that eventually we would get to a more equitable outcome because we'd see the benefits of that in our society. And we think, well, maybe if we take even a little bit, we could live with less at the top and take a little bit more and give it to more and we could even it out even more. Yes, eventually yeah. we all have the same but, things, but you and I are dead by then, Charlie, so we have nothing to lose. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it, let's say you, you, you just tax the top 1% on their wealth in right. some way. Right, in the same way, you know, maybe it's like the way when you reach your data cap, your internet gets throttled. So you, you know, you, you just slow down people's income once they hit a billion dollars for the year, right? Um, and if that means everyone goes to really good schools and teachers get paid the same as executives, which they should, what that actually does is that improves life in the world so much that. You know that all boats rise that that you know market capitalists like to talk about. That's actually what all boats rise looks like. If everyone is better educated, then all industries benefit. Everyone benefits from that. Like, it's it's the most obvious way to ensure success in the future is to educate people better. But but it's not done. What I think 
there's a system that they use, and I'm sure that there are flaws within it, but there is a system that they use uh, in some companies where the CEO's wages are linked to the lowest paid employee's yeah. wages, right? So if you want to earn twice as much as a CEO as you've earned previously, there has to be a proportional raise in whoever's paying, being paid worse in your company. It goes throughout the company. Yeah. So there is an incentive that when you do well, it does all boats do with rise. That. It's contracted in that your boat can't rise yeah. without it dragging up every other boat with it. In society, could there not be some similar thing pitch? We're not saying that you can't be rich. We're going to start with letting you still be rich, but how rich you are able to be is directly proportional to how poor people are. So once oh, we get to yeah. a certain minimum standard yeah. of living, sure, you can have like two boats or whatever, as long as everybody else has like could a house and can eat Could and you go imagine if, if that was the law, right? You said you can pay zero tax yep. once no one is living in poverty. Right. Watch how quickly the masters of industries <laughs> solve fucking poverty, right? It would be like they'd meet on a Thursday, they'd work on the weekend and it'd be done by Monday. Like... They well, admittedly, they could just shift assets and build housing, but like, but they can they can do things. That's the biggest lie we get told as well. There's lots of biggest lies <laughs> in my weekly column. The biggest lies. Biggest lies. But another another lie that we are told is this idea that things can't be done. We can't do anything about the homeless problem until there's a pandemic outbreak and there's an imperative for the rest of society to suddenly have the homeless off the street, and suddenly you realise. We can house the homeless. We can find places for them to live. We just needed the right imperative to do it. Yeah, we needed it to um, have our self-interest involved. Right. But, you know, it's it, Paul Keating, you know, when, when talk of what we do in an economic recovery started to happen and Paul Keating said, just build social housing, housing till the cows come home. And it's like, but how would that be an unpopular thing to do? Like, if... If you get behind, everyone has a fuck. If you're unemployed, you work in construction now, right. and if you're homeless, you've got a we'll house. Get your now. job. Do you know yeah. what? Fuck it. If you're homeless, you got to help build it. I don't care. It's a job. You know, like it's you know just have obviously have solid mental health as part of that matrix. But yeah, but like why felt, felt why little, are simple things like felt a little work for the doll suddenly? <laughs> I realized little slave labor. You build yeah. the fucking house. And you know, in the same way, like you talk about renewable energy and it's just like if everyone had a fucking job building windmills we'd fucking love windmills you know if windmills put food on the table that's you know the, mm. what you were talking about with if stand-up comedy was contributing to climate change that what you're talking about is stand-up comedian as coal miner basically you know the people who mm. have the only difference being we really love our job and i haven't heard heaps of coal miners say I do it for a love of the coal. Like I, I do it for the love uh, of the coal. I think you might be forgetting a very popular song by the name of "Hi Ho Hi Ho." It's off to work <laughs> we go. Um, I th I was thinking more of um the Bee Gees' "New York Mining Disaster," um, so <laughs> <laughs> which is basically how I learned everything I know about mining. But um, fucking amazing song, you know, and and in a way, just another version of "Staying Alive." Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, we, we yeah, need to sure. finish up soon, so I want to ask you. I, I know I want to ask you a couple of yeah. quick questions. Um, I have a magic wand, and I can give you any ability in the world. 
any ability. You don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You just immediately have this ability. What is it? And it doesn't need to be selfless. It can be completely selfish. It's just for you. Everyone's getting a go. So you get to have yours. What do you want to be able to do? Oh, man. I mean, flying is awesome. Flying would be awesome, but I, I, I suspect it might wear off over t- like over time. Mm-hmm. Still travel, yeah, isn't it? I, I think... I think like the the power of premonition, like knowing the future might be useful, but then if you see how you die, you get into that whole Mm. Twilight Zone episode that you don't want to be in. Um, Yeah. This is, do you know what? I would like infallible willpower. Oh. Uh, like so that I start an exercise regime and I stick to it and end up looking like the CrossFit motherfucker I wish I did. I mm. don't get distracted when I'm writing something and I get it done every time. I When I say, do you know what? I'm going to have an alcohol-free week. I actually have an alcohol-free week because I have a feeling if I had that, I could pretty much, I'd probably figure out how to fly. If I didn't drink and really stuck with the training, I could probably fly. <laughs> and by the way, uh, 2023 Melbourne Comedy Festival, Infallible yeah. Willpower, uh, coming <laughs> the, to the comedy The theater, moment so. I said it, I thought that's a good, that's a good will show. <laughs> but like, that's not exciting. But I have a feeling that infallible willpower would be, I, th- I think that would across the course of your life really be quite a bonus. That's you. Yeah, I like it. Um, I like it. I think that's a good option. Okay, I have a time machine. We like to talk about time machines. Um, I have a time machine. I can take it at any point. In the past, I've added a new feature since we last spoke, oh, yeah. by the way. Uh, you can now go forward in time if that uh, if you want that to be an option. Uh, anywhere, round trip, where are you going on your time machine today? Does it have to be a round trip? doesn't have to be. No, no, technically it doesn't have to be a round trip, but it does have a, like a time limit of some kind on it. It'll yeah. expire. You can't just keep your return trip up your sleeve. Yeah. Um, I need the machine back. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, it's really hard. I mean, I reckon the early 70s looked really... That looked good. Early 70s? Really? Great. Could you imagine going and seeing a fucking... Like I was going to say, could you imagine going and seeing Steely Dan? I went and saw Steely Dan. But could yeah. you imagine seeing young Steely Dan? Or like no, young no. Fleetwood Mac? I don't know. I... I think to if you were a man, the seventies was great. That was a good right. time. No, I, I don't know. I, like, because I'm writing a, I'm writing a, um, I think for Audible at the moment, which is all about when you would travel in, travel back in time, and who you would see and who you'd visit. I wouldn't go forward. It's too unpredictable. Like, it, like, do you imagine you go forward and you go forward fifty years and that like Earth is just burnt to a crisp, and you go, wow. How long okay. do you think it's safe to go forward? If I said you could only go forward. But you have to set what year you go to. What would be the year that you would be I think like there is, I think safest going to? I think there's every chance. There's every chance you could go to 2040 and the Earth would be <laughs> fucking unrecognizable. Like that's that's where I think we're at at the moment. And do you know what? Like, like, and people will be saying things like, um, we go like, oh, you know, yeah, it, things really got bad after COVID 28. Probably the worst of the early COVIDs. You know, like that's <laughs> like. There is so much. Like we have now seen just how quickly the genie can get out of the bottle. We, the Earth is burning. It's on fire as we speak. At any given time, something's on fire. 
in a on earth and the worst people are in charge so i don't think it's a good idea like like i don't think i don't i think 20 years ahead you know could be terrible <laughs> i look i reckon i genuinely ah oh, historically Here's the thing, like I'd love I'd love to be around Tuscany during the Italian Renaissance, but only if I was going to parties that Michelangelo and Don, and Leonardo da Vinci were going to. If you if you were a common person in the Renaissance, you had no idea it was going on. Most of the most of the times in history, you had no idea the history was happening. So, I don't know. I mean, like um I'm going to stick with the 70s. I reckon, yeah. I mean, I, I, what I'm going to say is, firstly, no one's ever said the 70s, so I'm happy with that. <laughs> and secondly, I do think there is an element that appeals to me of not going so far back that times would be unrecognisable to me because I don't want to, like, stand out too much and I certainly don't want to be inconvenienced by... Like, I'd, I'd like to go to a time where there's toilets, you know, and, like, yeah, absolutely. that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm probably more like your 60s, late 60s, I think, more yeah. than your... Your early seventies, but that's okay. No, that's, that's actually that's, not. I think we've we've got similar sensibilities. Yeah. I might be thinking of sixty nine, but maybe I want to avoid the draft. You know, I like. <laughs> I dodge it. Yeah. I mean, for political reasons, I would be a conscientious objector, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um. Oh, absolutely. Oh, you mean the NFL draft? Yeah. So, yeah so, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want. I still want to get in on father, father and son rule. Um. <laughs> but uh. Yeah, I like. Yeah, I think that that strikes me as a good time. Do you know what? There's something about that time that there was a belief that you could make yeah. a difference and make a change. That things could change, and the world—if we all bloody changed—yeah, then everything would work out okay for bloody humanity. Yeah, and do you know what ruined it? Mm. The moment an, ad, an advertising guy <laughs> decided to tap into that and said, "I could buy the world a coke and keep it company," and it, and like mm. that was the seed of the '80s, and that was it. Gruen, Gruen back October fourteen. If you want to learn more about that stuff, thank you, Charlie. I'll let you get back to your family. I really appreciate that you did this for me today. Um, always a pleasure. Good luck with the season. I can't wait to see how you do it, and you know, and then we should compare notes afterwards because it's um, it's a funny old game, television, but uh, and it's a and it's a nice. It's I reckon it's nice to have a hard thing to try and do. I think it's really good. Well, that's a nice note to finish on. Thank you, mate. Cheers, mate.